Awesome. All right, so as James pointed out, we're in the book of Romans, uh, and we're, we're cruising right along. Um, I have this as our 45th lesson, and we're in Romans 2, 17, and we'll kind of work our way through Romans 3, you know, 4 through maybe 8 um, this morning, and then we'll get through the last portion of this section of Romans next week, and then... We're going to spend the next three weeks, Jeff Tankersley is going to walk us through uh, what, he'll, what he'll eventually come up with the proper title for, but just really the battle or the siege against the doctrine of justification by faith, because it is the central doctrine. So he's going to spend three weeks going through a little bit of that history, church history, uh, right up to the present age, and then we will pick up. Uh, on the 19th of November, which is hard to believe already, um, with Paul's treatment of this doctrine of justification by faith in Romans 3.21. So looking forward to that and how that's all fallen into place. But uh, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, we just thank you we just thank you that we can settle our hearts settle our minds, push out the ever-encroaching world around us. And as your beloved Son, our beloved Savior, has so graciously called us and saved us to do, we now gather as saints to call to mind the wonders of your mercy and your grace in each and every one of our lives and the collective body of Christ. And what a joy and a privilege and a precious place it is. And we just praise you for it. And we pray that we would divide your word rightly, that we would exalt your son And that we would just honor the Spirit of God who meticulously inspired these words from this Apostle Paul, using every bit of the fabric of his life to do so. And so we just praise you, Lord, and we praise you in your precious name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we'll we'll return as Paul makes this transition from what we've seen really from 118, Romans 118, where he deals with what seems to be the rank pagan world that is given over and given over and given over to what is very likely the the shift from that uh, segment of the world, however you want to describe that, to really the religious hypocrite, where he starts with, who are you, old man, to judge one when you do the very same thing? So he immediately indicts every one of us properly, right? 
But then as he works his way through that, and he works his way through the way our conscience and the law written on our heart uh, unfold in the personal interior treatment of sin and exterior treatment of our self-righteousness, he comes to the Jew in Romans 2.17. And as I've mentioned before with this text, you realize that, again, Paul is making absolutely certain that no one in the hearing of this letter or the teaching of this book, as Becky and I were just taught, could possibly come through this section of text not realizing that the means by which we come to Christ is through this dark, storm of condemnation. And the question that we posed the last couple of weeks, and I'll be honest, it has one, been one that has continued to just kind of thrash around in me, which is the question that the, the wider mercy concept introduces, which is can we come to Christ some other way? than through this condemnation, other than this condemnation. And Jeff and I were just referring, and if you don't know the work of William Grinnell, 17th century, 800 pages on the whole armor of God that is now a daily devotional, I just plead with you to get it and enjoy it year after year after year. But this month has just peeled right into this study. And I just love the way the Spirit of God does that. But I want to read for you out of this book from a couple of days ago as I was kind of finalizing my my thoughts on this study. And I had this continuing haunting question when we look around our religious landscape. How many people profess the Lord Jesus Christ and have never seen themselves as the Bible defines them, right? That was precisely your discussion that Becky had this week with a couple. And was it pleasantly received? Not at all. This is fearful. This is fearful. I want you to take it that way. I want you to be motivated to understand that that we can evangelize people with a Feel the burden in your heart, say a prayer, and be saved. It is a discipleship that has to teach these truths, and this is one of the truths we must begin with, particularly for the religious person, which we are surrounded by, right? Gernal says this, The sinner who is thoroughly convicted by the Spirit sees himself like a condemned prisoner held by so many irons that escape is impossible. You know who I think about right there? I think about a guy named Saul who got thrown off his high horse by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who was left, sent to Straight Street, left for three days, and he didn't eat, he didn't sleep, he didn't drink for three days. This is where he was, right? Because this is where the Spirit brings every 
saint before they're saved, right? Let me read on. It is not their disease. Striking statement. It is not their disease, but their physician that kills the sinner. You ever think about it that way? Who declared the judgment of death for sin? Our physician, our Lord, our God, right? These old-timey saints just mind so much out. They think to cure themselves. There's our problem. And this deception leaves them incurable. This is not a new problem. <laughs> this is the ancient problem. This is the Tower of Babel. We, we, we don't need God. We can believe the lie right out of the garden. We can build our own tower. We can be just like God. We can be way up there with the gods, right? If you cling to the self-confidence, listen to this, of repentance and reformation, they will betray you into the hands of God's justice and wrath. What did the Lord tell the Jews? You search the scriptures as though in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify of me. That's the object of our salvation and worship and everything. It's Christ, right? But if you have turned away from this religious self-confidence, you have escaped one of the finest snares that the wit of hell can weave. Not only is the convicted sinner so convicted that he knows he is helpless, but he welcomes the full provision laid up in Christ for him. Now, I want, you to, I want you to hear that again, because what he says next was so helpful for me. Not only is the convicted sinner so convicted that he knows he is helpless, a vile sinner, do hell in condemnation, period, right? But he welcomes the full provision laid up in Christ for him. And Grinnell says, and this attitude is a necessary antecedent to faith. You hear what he's saying? This condemnation, this conviction, this realization that there is absolutely no way out for us is the, what has to come before genuine, saving faith comes in. And it's the Father and the Spirit of God and the Son of God who teach all of this at that moment, right? And the question you have to ask is, are there any other ways? Because it sure seems like there are when you examine the landscape of the religious world we're living in. 
Without it, this conviction, the soul convicted of sin is more likely to go to the gallows with Judas or fall on the sword of the law than to run to Christ. And I would say the true Christ, the only way Christ, right? Because in many, many, many circles, Christ is simply a complement to your effort to reach God. He's complementary. <laughs> I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, right? We're not cooperating. Sin has put us to death. The cross has put us to death. And Christ has brought us to life alone, right? That, that's the point of Scripture. The Spirit powerfully but sweetly renovates the rebellious will, something Jeff talked about a few weeks ago, so it can deliberately choose Christ as Lord and Savior. And then he asks the question, has the Spirit of God put his key, golden key, into the lock of your will to unlock your will? away from love of self, reliance on self, dependence on self, goodness of self, to unlock that, right? To open the door of your heart and let Christ the King of glory in. So it is the Spirit and the teaching of the Father. Look what my Son has done for you in that storm of conviction that is the point at which Salvation comes through our thrice holy God. Think about that when you are discipling people, right? He has, has he opened the eye of your understanding? Has he awakened, has he awakened Peter asleep in prison and caused the chains of dullness to fall off your conscience? And again, this is, this is what's really at the heart of true biblical Christianity, the true biblical gospel. And it is absolutely under siege today, right? What are our children taught in school today? What is Disney busy teaching them? Seriously, take a look at it. It is the antithesis of this message. It's fearful when you think about the seriousness of this. So Paul shifts to the Jews. So look at Romans 2.17, and I'm going to read all the way through Romans 3.4 just so you can see this in this section. Paul turns to the Jew and he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of truth. And at this point, the Jew... 
the self-righteous Jew, who apparently Paul was quite concerned about being in the audience of the reading of this letter, right? Must be saying, yep, that's me. That's me. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? It's exactly where he set up the religious non-Jewish person in Romans 2.1. Who are you, old man, right? To judge when you do the very same thing, he's bringing them to the exact same point of conviction right here. It's important to note as we continue reading, Paul's making sure we know we're all hypocrites when we're in this mode. And when we use the law to build ourselves up, we have failed to realize that the purpose of God's law is to tear us down. That's the problem. We're all using the law as some scale to determine that we're better than someone else. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What worse message could you hear from God than that? You blaspheme God. Why? Because you reject who you really are and you pretend in my name to be something entirely different. And you know where this goes, especially for the man that gets behind the pulpit. He decides what's true and what's not true. He twists the scriptures because he knows what they want to hear, because it was them that got him in this place, the itching ears, right? So when the self-righteous, self-centered teacher gets in the pulpit, this passage of Scripture has to go right out the window, right out the window. Verse 27, sorry, verse 25. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, which all of us do, you, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Boy, you can figure out pretty quick why Paul was beaten and stoned and everything else by the Jewish people because he is peeling right into their self-righteousness and their sense of self-worth, self-worth. He's peeling right into it. And they stoned him and beat him for it and chased him out of town and left him for dead. 
For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outwardly and physical. And of course, Paul builds on this theme in chapter 4 and really all the way out through chapter 11. But a Jew is one inwardly, and his praise is not from man, but from God. And that praise from God, that interior praise from God, is where the true peace and contentment come from. Because man's praise is fickle. Man's praise is really rooted in what he wants from you. Verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Think about John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. You see how consistently the gospel writers spoke to this? We're going to see that quite a bit this morning. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, Paul says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Pay attention to that. Said another way, God will be faithful, as Paul says in Timothy, even maybe even especially when we are not faithful. We will reap what we sow. Remember all those passages we went through about the judgment of the body of Christ? Not unto eternal condemnation, but unto rewards and losses. God will be faithful, right? We, we don't have a big check mark that says, it doesn't matter what we do anymore. Jesus has got us covered. In an eternal sense, he does. But as Paul has gone through very diligently in this text, we will be accountable and judged by our deeds. It's a very interesting truth that Paul reveals here. What if, verse 3, what if some of you were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And you may recognize or have a concordance, but that comes straight out of Psalm 51 when David was under the deepest, darkest of conviction of his sin. When he said in Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God will do as he said he's going to do, right? That's David's point. And he was, if you look at where he was in Psalm 51, he was suffering horribly under the weight of, of his unrepented sin. And it struck me that David 
really shows us really what is the first half of true repentance, and that is right thinking about our holy God that then puts us in this proper place of humanity, which is judged, condemned, and in desperate need of that holy God, right? We, we in so many ways have it backwards, and God is this puppy dog that just is beckoned to everything we need and call, right? It's this narcissistic society if we're not careful. I want you to think about Galatians 3, 23 through 24 in light of this whole passage. And we're going to work through really how the New Testament writers and the gospel writers unpack this, particularly our Lord. But look at Galatians 3, 23 and 24 in light of this passage, particularly what Gernal said about the antecedent of faith, what comes before faith. Think about that when you read Paul here in Galatians 3.23. And he says it explicitly. Verse 23, now, before faith came. There it is. We were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be Revealed. So it is, it is the coming faith that is following this condemnation of the law that Paul is teaching us here in Romans 1, 2, and 3 that is the means by which the Spirit of God convicts us and points us to where our faith must be where our faith must be, the object of our faith, and it is not here. That's his whole point. It's his whole point of this beautiful passage in Galatians 3.23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith and faith alone, which is what Jeff's going to work us through. And this is why we will see the entire history of the New Testament church and the Old Testament Jewish attack on the salvation of Abraham is centered on this very topic. How are you saved? Right? in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, I want to go back to the focus on the Jews here with Paul, and I want to unpack some passages, some lengthy, so bear with me. We're really going to just let the Scriptures do the teaching this morning in particular. But look at Matthew 15, and there's a lot to be pursued in this passage, but I want you to just grab the essence of the entirety of this passage. Matthew 15, 1 says, with our focus on the Jews and their self-righteousness, our Lord says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat, he answered them. And why do you break the commandment of God 
for the sake of your tradition. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, and here it comes. You hypocrites. You have set yourself above God and completely rewrote his words to align them to the times and your whimsical feelings. Maybe a thought for today, right? When we look at the way the church is just running away from the truth of God, right? And condoning what he condemns. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So now the worship is entirely vain, self-worship. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So there you go. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. This is what I want you to zero in. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. It's not your upbringing, as rough as some of them have been. It's not that rotten kid next door. It wasn't my bad father or my, you know, uh, often whatever mother. It's, it was always in here. It was always in here. That's Jesus' point. And look at the disciples and their fear of man. And look how dangerous that is when we're treating the Word of God, especially when it just gets right into these hard spots, right? Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. And here comes the most fearful words anyone would ever, ever know from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit, straight into Romans 2, the section we just read, as part of their condemnation. Look at Romans 10, 1 through 4. And this is how we must see the religious landscape of people who are caught in self righteous, works-based religion, which, by the way, this passage helps us understand it is far more than we ever managed to believe. And Jesus just said it, right? Look at Paul's heart, though. I think about this when I think about my Roman Catholic family and the entire life of me up until I left. Everybody I knew are steeped in a religion that is precisely described by Paul right here about the Jewish religion. 
Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. That is not solid ground in evaluating the spiritual well-being of anybody. Matter of fact, one could offer that the more outward the spirituality seems to be, the more darkened or empty the interior is. But look what he says. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant, here it comes, of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own and using God as their aid to do that. Why do you think they took the ark into the battle? Well, let's take, let's take God with us and we'll win this. And what happened? Right? It's exactly the point. And I, I bring you through these and you might wonder why in the world. But this is, do you see how cohesive scripture is around these core doctrines and how important they are that we get them right? If we get them wrong, right, we will be horrendously deceived into thinking there's another way. And the Oprah Winfrey's and the Joel Olsteins and the and the, the countless people who said there's a wider mercy and there's another way will sound very appealing because it will affirm what our conscience won't allow. And so we sear it away, right? Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish of their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Meaning, break one little part of the law and you are guilty and condemned. Period. That's where it started in the garden, if you find that hard to believe, right? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, because it is not my righteousness, Philippians 3.9. You see how it all just fits and revolves around this core? That's why Paul started here and then went to justification by faith. I wanted to draw on Luke 13, by the way, which starts with Luke 13, begins with repent or perish. And the question, you know that tower that fell and those people that were slain, what did they do to deserve that was the question. What did Jesus tell them? Do you think in some crazy way that you are better off than they, that that could have just as easily been you and you better repent or you will perish just like them, right? It's an interesting passage to think about in light of today's global circumstances. If we don't see the wrath of God all around us in everything that's going on, we are sorely mistaken because we live in a world, particularly in the nation of Israel, 
that high-handedly rejects God. It's fearful. Look at Luke 13, 22, though. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? They're beginning to really wonder because their whole idea of Christ's ministry was the messianic kingdom is coming and he's going to bring it and he's going to become more and more popular and more and more powerful and then he's going to usher in the kingdom. That was their entire mindset. Even after he was crucified, rose and was about to ascend into heaven. That was the question on their hearts, right? And here they are saying, wait a minute, are few going to be saved? What about the kingdom? And he said to them, and I want you to pay attention to this word, strive. Ag- I don't know, butcher it. Agonize. Agonize. Now I want you to think about that. He says, agonize to enter through the narrow door. So the coming to this narrow door is to agonize to it. Agonize over what? Your utter inability to get there apart from God. Paul sitting for three days, agonizing over the law that he held so precious as the very means by which he was way up here when everybody else was way down there. Talk about a recipe for being comfortable, being contempt towards everyone. Look at all the little people compared to me, right? Strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That ought to tell us something right there. And then he says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, wait a minute, (laughs) right? The master shuts the door? And you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know you where you come, and this is what I want you to pay attention to, from. And I'm going to ask you right now, because this bothered me all week, where is the from he's talking about, right? How are people coming to the door? And doesn't this passage kind of disrupt the whole, just ask Jesus into your, knock on the door and ask Jesus into your heart, because he's really just this big puppy dog, and he just really wants to save you, right? And he wants to help you through whatever it is you're going through. And all those are true in a sense, but they are not the means by which we come to Christ. According to Paul and Jesus, which is why I'm comfortable standing here saying that when it's not natural to say that in a human sense, is it? Luke 18, he said in a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. See how clear the gospel writers were to address this issue if you look for it. And treated others with contempt. There it is. When the higher you think of yourself, the more likely and inclined you are to treat everybody else with contempt. 
Can you say, hello, world? Right? Grady preached on this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One Pharisee, the other tax collector, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus and exalted himself. God, I thank you that I am not like all the other men. There's that contempt. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, because he just described everything that Paul just attributed to the Jew, didn't he? Right? Then there's the tax collector. The lowest of the lowest, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There it is. A worthless, useless, given over sinner. Right? I think that's what your text taught when you dug into it. Right? Right there, we stand with absolutely no hope except for the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That's why people died for centuries over that doctrine. I tell you, says the Lord, this man went down to his house, and here comes our word, justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I want to look at a couple things for us back to this question of, from where do we come, this antecedent of faith? Look at John 10 with me for a minute. John 10, 1 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, what is that other way that they climb into the sheepfold, right? That man is a thief and a robber, so we know it's not consistent with what Christ is about to achieve. But he who enters by the door, and we know who that door is, is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out of the sheepfold because they know his name and they trust him. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And there's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, illumining our hearts and minds to truth, and the radar that says, run, run from these damning doctrines particularly the damning doctrines of self-righteousness, which is how all of the sheepfold, Israel, was gathered together. And you see within the midst of Israel, and you see this particularly at the advent of our Lord, all these beautiful believers. <laughs> and they're working in the temple, and they're here, and they're there. 
These are the sheep that Jesus comes in and calls out because all the others came in through the door or over the wall of self-righteousness. That's how they're there, right? For this figure, verse 6, for this figure of speech Jesus used with them. But they did not understand for what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So there we know it is through Christ. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them, the little remnant. I am the door. Anyone who enters by me, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly to lead them out of this sheepfold, right? How, how does that happen? What does that look like? John 8.30, I think, is a very powerful passage. John 8.30 says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And this was part of this confrontation that has now been going on the better part of five months with our Lord and the religious leaders. They've just dogged him and stalked him. And it's, this is part of the climax. And in John 8.30, there's this encouraging sign that all of a sudden all these people are now finally believing in Jesus in John 8.30. But look at what Jesus says in John 8.31. So Jesus said to the Jews, there they are, who had believed in him. Right? Right? Go get baptized and everything will be great with your life? Not at all. This is us, you guys. This is our discipleship responsibility. It's why the commission says, go make disciples. <laughs> right? Look at what Jesus says. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And in your abiding with the word, no matter how long that might take, no matter how agonizing that might be as you continue to search the word, knowing how deep the conviction of your sin might be, you will be my disciples if you remain in my word. Because what God began, he will finish. And I can't help but wonder from this passage how long we walked with the conviction and the Spirit of God until they revealed to us what Jesus reveals in the very next sentence, which is the beautiful part, right? Look at it. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And what? The truth will set you free. Now, I want to ask you, and I want to use the from Word again. From what? From what? The overwhelming, suffocating conviction of the Spirit of God and the law of God bringing us to the end of ourselves. That's what we're set free 
from. And we realize through the, te- for the, through the Father who turns us to Christ, it says, not my righteousness, his righteousness granted to me from totally outside of me, which is how Paul opens up Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested completely apart from the law, although they all bear witness to it through faith in Jesus Christ, something external because it could never come from in here. That's the point we have to get across to your friends, to my family, to everyone steeped in a self-righteous religion, right? And the first radar you're going to get is the hatred of the doctrine that says you are under the wrath of God. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and the truth you will know, and that truth will set you free. Okay, I want to just close here, and please go here with me, Colossians 1, 9 through 14, because this is the glory of our thrice holy God on this side of the cross for all who believe. Colossians 1, 9 through 14, and we'll close here. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And there's part of the agonizing, the striving, the being in the word of God, the mining out of the truths of scriptures. Don't be superficial with the word that God has given us and preserved over all of the attacks it's been under for all this time. That alone should tell us how precious it is to God, right? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, this is how we are sanctified, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Now listen to this. Remember, it's the Father through the convicting work of the Spirit that turns us to the work of the Son on the cross, according to John 6. Right? Think about that when I read this passage. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, the freedom that Jesus talked about in John 8.31 from the law and our effort to be righteous before God and reject Christ on the cross. So that, that's what Paul's getting at here. And next week, we'll finish up uh, this section by getting into the sources that Paul speaks, that litany of passages where he condemns all of mankind again in that last section of this passage. So thank you, guys. Uh-huh.